So welcome to the state of sense making on the web panel at the inaugural Overweb Challenge. I'm Albert Kim, founder of Nodic Nomads, a community of radical thinkers and doers co-creating a more beautiful future. And I am your loud and obnoxious moderator for today. Now, the Overweb Challenge is being brought to you by Bridget.io and Nodic Nomads. You can find us at nodicnomads.org. Thank you to our sponsors, the Overweb Foundation and the Forbes Funds, and to our partners, including the EU's Next Generation Internet, UMI, Edge Writers, Accelerant Solutions, Wheat Tech Belgium, The Funding Box, and School. Last but not least, thanks so much everyone for joining us today. And everyone here gets an invite to the Noetic Nomad Discord, where you can be part of the next generation of sense makers and change makers. The link is in the chat. Okay, so I would like to start by introducing our amazing panelists. And uh, I have to be the luckiest little doggy in the world because with me today on this panel are some of my favorite people in the world. Let me start with a filmmaker, writer, educator, and president of the International Basin Institute, Nora Basin, a producer, reporter, and filmmaker, and co-founder of Rebel Wisdom. He goes by the name of David Fuller, a writer, educator, futurist, and member of the Consilience Project, which I believe we're all very familiar with. Uh, his name is Zach Stein, a nonprofit executive and founder of the Society Library, the Internet Government, and the Great American Debate. She is Jamie Joyce. And finally, a mechatronic engineer, sense maker in residence at the STOA and founder of the Bridge Project. Uh, very apropos as this event is presented by Bridget.io. His name is Evan McMullen. So I would like to start uh, this session uh, by asking the panel. So, um, well, okay, this is how I like to start. So each of us, uh, myself is included, is linked to varying degrees with this thing called the sense-making space. Now the term sense-making was originally coined in the 70s by American organizational theorist, uh, Carl Weick. And put simply, it could be defined as the process by which people give meaning to their experiences. Now it's very telling that there is such a space dedicated to sense-making and that it's exploded in popularity since the start of the pandemic, where people were forced to live out their lives uh, hanging on every word of both the mainstream and alternative media. Um, so I'd like to begin by with each, pan uh, with each panelist sharing a brief introduction of themselves and their work and how that work has shifted with respect to our collective ability to make sense since the start of COVID. Now I will pass it on to our lovely panelist. Uh, my first one on my screen, Jamie, can you please start us off? Can you please give us a brief introduction of yourself and your work and how that work has shifted with respect to uh, sense-making since the start of COVID? Got it. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Albert. Thank you so much to the whole Overweb Foundation and everyone involved in making this possible. I really appreciate it. My name is Jamie Joyce. I'm the executive director of the Society Library. For those who are visually impaired, I am a Caucasian female with big round brown glasses and black uh, cat eye eyeliner. And it's wonderful to be here with you all. Uh, the Society Library is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and what we do is we extract the arguments, claims, sentiments, and evidence from various forms of media in order to construct databases which house all of the argumentation from all points of view on very complex social and political issues. Uh, to give that um, a more concrete, um, to give a more concrete example of that work, in our work in mapping the climate change debates in the English-speaking United States, we found that after looking at millions of information artifacts, there's about 274 unique subtopics of debate that Americans engage in about climate change. Each one of those subtopics can have anywhere from two to seven positions and thousands of arguments and pieces of evidence each. So the work that we do is in mapping all of that content. 
And it's important to us not only to enable access to information for people's individual sense making, but to make it cognitively accessible as well. So for every single claim and argument, we find different media expressions that contain that. That could be a sarcastic podcast snippet, a meme or a video to connect those things to. Because it's not enough just to have access to information, but for it to be understandable and comprehensible. Um, I only have a little bit of time, but I will say that for the, uh, the purpose of our work is to truly enable free and informed choice. The Society Library's long-term goal is for future generations to grow up with this consolidated library so they can have more free and informed choices in what they willfully choose to believe or adapt to their beliefs as they grow up. Because right now, wherever someone is born in the world, whatever educational institution they attend and whatever ideas they happen to haphazardly run into, their socialization is more haphazard or it's just ideological inheritance. And so we want to emancipate humanity by giving them access to information. While that's our long-term project, we have some more immediate projects uh, that address issues today, such as uh, the Great American Debate, for example. These deal with high-impact, persistent, and polarizing issues in the United States, much like climate change. Um, we do work that includes educating the public on uh, different sense-making techniques from our own methodology, and we do consulting with uh, local and federal level governance entities in order to improve their decision-making to make it more inclusive, rational, and logical. Um, as for how we've changed since COVID, uh, I will say that the Society Library was already a distributed organization from the beginning. We've worked with people all over the world. However, we did take on a COVID project, which we called COVID Convo, and we found that there were over 500 different dimensions of points of view about COVID in the United States alone. So while it gave us more work to do, we were more than prepared uh, to uh, 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 work with our team in order to start working on content that's rele relevant to the current age. So thank you all so much. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Jamie, and for your amazing work. And uh, next on my screen is perhaps the genesis of the OverWeb uh, uh, convention happening right now is Nora Bateson. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your work and how that has changed with respect to sense making since the start of this era? Well, first of all, hi. Uh, it's good to be here. And um, my work is, um, I, it, it spans a lot of different um, communities. It spans a lot of different um, topics. I'm, I'm working with education and with health and with technology and with econ economics and uh, families. And um, I think the, the way that I am, am interested in, in bringing my work into the world is through um, generating contexts of mutual learning in which um, lots of people from lots of different directions, different generations um, can uh, begin to um, become familiar with the the not I, I don't I don't want to just say the complexity because I feel like that would actually be too easy. Um, what I want to say is that there is, uh, you know, of course, a, a deep interdependency of life, and it's easy to throw jargon over the top of that and memorize that jargon. It's another thing altogether to become familiar with the way in which those interrelational processes are shifting and moving and, and creating all sorts of messes. Um, and those messes in turn reflect upon, uh, with any luck, 
the habituated ways in which language and schools and culture and everything else have um, created our sense-making pathways and, and, and processes. And so that it's really tricky to, to know whether the sense that you're making about something is how it is, or is it your own epistemology, your own set of filters that's creating that. And then the language of description, the processes of description from there, very easily just perpetuated. Okay, so pretty much no matter what I'm doing, I'm working kind of in that zone. Um, and uh, there's a lot to do in that zone. It's a never ending um, possibility of, of um, confusion, but also of insight and, and possibility. So I started this thing called uh, Warm Data. And the idea with warm data is that it's a, a way of thinking about information that is different. And um, it's looking at different contexts coming together and creating um, a kind of information that's alive. So it's relational information, but it's information that's coming through multiple contextual processes. So we could look at the, the virus, for example, is very transcontextual. Um, and this is one of those moments when actually suddenly it's not so hard to describe what I'm talking about because there's a lived experience that it, this, is, this is certainly an economic thing. This is definitely a media issue. This is about education. This is about how parents and children are communicating. This is about your love life. This is about, um, certainly it's about health, um, but it's also about how we feel about pharmaceutical companies and it's how we feel about politics and right. So where's the issue and how would we use not just all these different threads, okay? Because you could see all these different contexts as different threads, but what's the relationship between them? What, and how are those relationships in motion? How are they shifting? So it's a, it's a considerably more challenging question than just, let's just list the stakeholders and stream in the data. Um, it's, it's much more alive. So I, you know, the thing about warm data is that um, I created a, a process to work with groups and I work with groups all over the world. I think we're working in 40 countries now. There's over 500 trained hosts in this process and the, the certification is really rigorous and so much fun. There's so much theory, it's, it's so much fun. Um, but I didn't want this process to go on the internet. People kept saying, we got to put it online. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I mean, the warm data, there's so much that happens in the warm data that you, will never be digital. It'll never be digital. It'll never happen. You know, you, I, when we're having a conversation and you can see my cheeks pink or you can, you know, smell my breath, haha, or you can share the temperature of the room with me. Okay, there's so much information there that is, it's just not possible to digitize that. It just isn't. And so the way that my processes work is that people move from context to context and they have these conversations and all kinds of things come up um, and we had to move it onto the internet. It finally happened. But 
I want to tell you this, but I, I need to speedily get through so the others can speak. We found a really interesting way to allow that analog process to take place and have it not be mitigated by the technology. The technology is there as um, a connecting place, but it is not where the warm data is happening. And that was a really interesting process of how that got developed. So I'll stop there and we'll hear from the others and we can come back if, if interested. Mm, wow, thank you so much. And again, this uh, trans contextual thinking is something that I've very much uh, gotten into as I get into more of your work. And I'm, I'm so appreciative for all the work you do, Nora. Thank you so much for really co-creating this session just for by your existence. You, you brought this into being. I'm talking, uh, speaking of um, co-creation, um, I after the Sense Making 101 course I did over the summer, I came alive, I found out what my gifts are, and then I started Noetic Nomads. This thing was created by Noetic Nomads. And uh, the uh, co-founder of Rev Wisdom is David Fuller. Can, please, can you tell us a little bit uh, intro of your work and how perhaps it's changed since the start of the COVID era? Yeah, thanks, Albert. So my background, I've been a journalist for about 20 years, mostly with Channel 4 and the BBC in the UK. And Rebel Wisdom started a couple of years ago, really to... It's been an exploration, a live exploration into some of the thinkers that I found most interesting. So we featured people that you'll be familiar with. I see Zach Stein, Nora Bateson, um, Daniel Schmachtenberger as well, who's probably done as much as anyone to popularize the idea of sense making or the, the kind of interest in sense making uh, and is now involved with the Consilience Project, which Zach is also involved with. And I've, I'd say that COVID has brought to to a head lots of the issues that I've been thinking about for quite a long time, especially coming from a kind of the mainstream media and then going into the alternative media and seeing the failure conditions of both. Like there's a group think in mainstream media, there's, there's um, a really warped incentive structure and there's a kind of increased corruption of the media, which is probably mostly because kind of the idea of who watches the watchmen this kind of idea there's not really a lot of accountability. There's all of these relationships that come in where they get too close to politicians or they get too close to business. And then this becomes a corrupting force on finding truth. And I think a lot of people have pointed that out, but then I've also seen the incentive structure of alternative media is if anything worse, audience capture, um, the kind of whatever the, the structure was that we had with the with the mainstream or traditional media, I prefer to say the traditional rather than mainstream, um, at least there were some checks and balances. There was some sense of um, fact checking. If you put some claim out there, you'd have to get the response from the person you're making the claim about all of that, which we've completely lost in the alternative media. And I've seen since the beginning of COVID, like the incentive structure for people to put out misinformation has grown massively. You've seen all of these influences, especially for us in kind of more spiritual circles. I think a lot of people have noticed this kind of conspirituality, this kind of mashing together of um, conspiracy thinking and spirituality and all of these, all of these influences just following the fact that wow, I, I put out something about anti-vax, I put something about QAnon, suddenly I'm getting a lot of people following me, I'm getting a lot of more traction. People have followed the incentive landscape 
because people are trapped at home, people are worried, people are scared, people are over kind of like trying to find an answer. Why is this going on? Oh, it's definitely uh, a, an elite plan to keep us all inside and, to, 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 and all of these things. And we've seen a massive accelerator breakdown of sense making. And I think that's one of the most difficult questions is how do we make space for the new and alternative challenges to mainstream thinking that are where all of the novelty and all of the um, the answers that we desperately need are they're on, they're on the fringes how do we how do we make space for that while also subjecting them to critique subjecting them to criticism in the way that used to work in in the traditional media like people would say something they'd come on you do an interview with them then there, there was a process of things being checked now i think we've lost all of this and we're in a kind of no man's land and i'd love that there is a technical solution to this personally i'm skeptical I, I don't see how you can render all of these things in a i don't think you can i don't think the problem of truth will be solved by a technical there may be tools that we can use but i don't think that the ultimate answer is going to be technical um i don't quite know what the answer is but i think it involves some sense of there has to be a growth and psychological aspect to it as well um, which is why you mentioned the sense-making course that we do, why it starts with very much kind of mindfulness, looking at how we're taken over, how we're triggered, how we're influenced by the information we're taking in. So that's, that would be my summary. Yes, thank you so much, David. And thank you for putting the Sense-Making 1-1 course on. I'm, I highly recommend it because this whole thing is a big product of that. So again, thank you, David. And um, yeah, speaking of possible solutions and ways forward and talk about, uh, you know, we're here to try to envision a possible ways forward, a solution or, or something that could help us with sense-making. Uh, we have Zach Stein here, uh, very much involved in the education space. So Zach, could you please uh, speak into um, your personal work and how it has changed with respect to sense-making since the start of the COVID era? Totally, thank you. And uh, yeah, pleased to be here. Um, great to see faces that I recognize and, and new folks. Uh, yes, I'm a philosopher of education and a developmental psychologist um, and have been focused on education extremely broadly construed for a couple decades now uh, with a strong background in psychometrics, uh, but also uh, having done a lot of work in metaphysics and uh, various branches of psychology. Uh, the way that <laughs> I came to understand the situation we were in was as a situation of drastic educational crisis, like approaching a catastrophic bifurcation of intergenerational transmission, right? And so I actually had this idea <clears throat> before I met Daniel Schmachtenberger about existential risk and civilizational collapse. And that actually, if there was a catastrophic bifurcation and intergenerational transmission, civilization would cease to function. <laughs> Literally, you couldn't get new people into the roles that people were leaving. And so like, there are all these big complex things that we built, which we can't maintain. And there are all these like complex identities and forms of moral reasoning that we needed to maintain to maintain these complex things. And we can't get, get that. Um, and so, yeah, I began collaborating with Daniel in 2015 around issues of civilizational collapse. And when the pandemic hit a lot of the stuff that had been theoretically floating around started to come into focus around this thing called the Consilience Project, which is an attempt to build uh, a movement around the 
brokenness of the information ecosystem. So you, if you imagine when Rachel, Rachel Carson published Silent Spring, right? Like she, she publishes that and you get the beginning of something like an environmental movement, which hadn't really existed before. And then you get people who are building their identities around the idea that there's something wrong here and we need to fix it. Uh, and so we actually need a movement around sense making that's akin to the environmental movement where we actually recognize that this is an existential threat to our ways of life and new ways of being people, new forms of value and identity need to begin to emerge as well. And while it appears that the issue is the way we're thinking and it appears that the issue has something to do with truth, it actually has to do with the structure of the way we are feeling. Uh, and so some of what's happening with the Consilience Project is trying to work at the level of clearing thought <laughs> for the emerge so that so that the for the revelation of feeling and emotion uh, and so as a psychologist it's hard for me not to see what we're witnessing in the media ecosystem not just simply a result of techno-economic structures but also the result of something like a uh, broadly distributed low-grade psychosis um, and uh, so that's a disturbing thought. So it's the case that, yeah, we need to think more clearly, but we also need to uh, be able to work and heal at the level of emotion and identity. Um, and those two things are related deeply. So that's a little bit of my thinking and kind of where we're at. Um, Yes, uh, thank you so much, Zach. And uh, one thing, I, one, one of the things that I really much appreciate about the Consilience Project is not just the, the news, the meta news and the real time dialogue, which may be just more left brain focused, but there's also like a, a movement catalyzing strategy, which um, may involve not just like the intuitive right brain, perhaps like the whole body. Uh, in, in fact, I'm going to use Evan McMullen, uh, our next panelist term, whole body sense making, you know, how do we make sense with the entirety of ourselves, but also maybe the, the trans contextuality where we're not actually individuals we're just you know we're we're part of this this you know interweaving this this interwoven ecosystem and uh, we can move on to evan uh would you please like to give a brief uh, introduction about yourself and your work and how uh, things have changed since the start of the COVID era yeah so i suppose my journey into sense making starts with something zach mentioned which is the sort of breakdown of education um i had very interesting experiences in the educational system growing up as a child of the 80s and 90s and found that I was not really being taught how to understand the world around me. And this really stuck in my craw. So I, uh, I entered into the, the workforce. I did a lot of work in the nonprofit sector, very young, um, working in land conservation and so on. And then I had a sort of series of uh, profound spiritual and psychological crises that led to me basically taking a a little bit more than 10 years essentially off from the rest of life to explore um, paths of what I like to now refer to as phenomenological self-inquiry. So this was primarily through Buddhist paths, uh, <clears throat> first uh, mindfulness and uh, Theravada style meditation, then into Buddhist Tantra and the Nyingma and uh, Mikyo traditions. And then that took me into a whole interesting world of uh, lesser known thinkers, they're probably quite known around these parts, people like Robert Anton Wilson, Timothy Leary, Gurdjieff, Crowley, the whole rabbit hole there. And uh, <clears throat> so I spent quite a long time exploring that and developed um, a much better sense of what sort of 
thing I was and what sort of space the world was. And this sense was of course tempered with a great amount of uncertainty, both inherent uncertainty and model uncertainty. So um, I, I, I tried talking to people about it and was mainly, you know, um, did, people didn't really want to talk about that at the time. So I sort of uh, began living a quiet life, uh, being more or less a hermit socially and just uh, I have explored a bunch of different career paths. I'm currently a mechatronics engineer. I've done sound engineering, event production, teaching, a bunch of other stuff in, in the interim. And then during COVID, this actually marked a radical shift into collective sense making for me because I discovered through a roundabout path involving the Vajrayana community, this wonderful space called the Stoa. And I found that there was actually a community of people collected from all around the world that were interesting in talking about the exact things that I had spent so long researching, practicing and delving into. So um, COVID in my own life uh, narrative was a, a pretty positive experience so far and that I've had the opportunity to reach out and collaborate with other people who recognize the same problem space, even if we might not agree on the direction of the solutions. 100% we're at least sort of seeing the same broad outlines of the problem space, and that's been really encouraging. And so my own work at this point um, consists of a project I'm doing currently on the STOA, though I'm also moving into other venues in the near future um, called The Bridge. This was inspired by um, an article that uh, David Chapman of Meaningness uh, wrote on the topic that Zach mentioned earlier, having to do with the fact that we live in a society which is dependent on certain systems and we're no longer able to pass on the ability to maintain and develop these systems successfully. So we're entering into a sort of space where the machinery of society is falling apart for lack of maintenance. And this has to do both with sense-making and with more prosaic concerns. So the bridge project is an effort to distill everything that I um, spent, you know, more than a decade researching and practicing mainly full time in a way that is a little bit more, um, I, I guess you would say a little bit more context, context independent. And so the sort of uh, thrust of the bridge is an effort to create a sort of meta language for people who are practicing uh, phenomenological self-inquiry and other forms of practical philosophy to be able to share their results and speak across traditions um, rather than, for example, like I coming from maybe mainly a Buddhist lineage. So being caught up in talking about terms that are derived from Sanskrit or Tibetan and maybe those are translated differently by different people and so on, but to sort of create a more um, easy to use and concise vocabulary that also, and this is important, um, is able to be compatible with the insights and language of modern science, particularly psychology and um, also the physical sciences. So my first session of the bridge was called the bridge from, rational from rationality to quote woo in scare quotes. And that does take us to the phrase that uh, I don't know if I've coined it, but that I use a lot, whole being sense-making. Because the more that I began to explore um, the universe, I realized that my mind, my intellect, no matter how sharp it was, was not sufficient to answer the questions of meaning and a right choice and right action. And so I came upon a concept in the ancient Greek literature called metis, right? Um, metis is essentially more or less identical with what I mean when I say whole being sense-making. Metis was that skill that was required for a uh, a pilot of a ship to navigate stormy waters through all that uncertainty. It involves intense qualities of present moment awareness, as well as the ability to both deceive and see through the deceptions of others. And there's wonderful references to this everywhere from the Iliad, the Odyssey, to many of the ancient Greek philosophers. Parmenides talks about this a lot, etc. So that's kind of what I'm working on and what I'm cooking up right now. I'm very excited and honored to be here on this panel. So thank you, Albert. 
Yes, yes. Thanks so much for joining us, Evan. And uh, one of the many things, I guess, that came out of this was you're waking up, you're coming out of your hermitude, much like I did. I was a hermit for like 10 years, similar to you. And then this thing happened. I found Rebel Wisdom. I found uh, Nora. I found Zach through the stoa. I found uh, Evan through the stoa. I found Jamie through the stoa. So this this all happened because of this. So perhaps there is a silver lining there. So, okay, thanks so much again, panelists, for those amazing introductions. So I would like to start this. Um, and after I post this, um, we could open it up and anyone could join in. Um, so Nora, I would actually go, like to go into a tweet that it came across of yours recently, where uh, you uh, brought up the topic of cake. Now, I was a pastry chef in a past life, so flour, sugar, fat, and salt makes me very happy. But in this case, however, cake was used as a metaphor. And the way they spoke about it was that uh, a cake is not a cake, but it's actually a long story of an alchemical, alchemical combining of understandings of chemistry, appetites, ceremony, and aesthetics. And recent events in the U.S. by analogy were also not events, but the consequence of the yeast of generations of epistemological confusion. So um, I would, I guess I would like to open up to the panel and first by uh, handing it over to you, Nora, can you elaborate on what these successive generations of yeast may be comprised of and what perhaps may be their mother? So please, can you take it away? No biggie. <laughs> Just give me, you know, a good two minutes on this. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, there's an old saying, uh, and uh, my dad quoted it, that said, the, the fathers have eaten of the bitter fruit and the children's teeth are set on edge. That things have happened in the past that we don't know now. We weren't there, we don't know, but we feel without knowing why we feel. The impressions, the imprints, the the um the the stains the 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 alchemy of hundreds of years and multiple generations um so you, you know how do you bake such a cake well i don't know you might start with um several hundred years of competition and and individualism you might um you know put into it the the need to to get ahead this idea of what's in it for me you could bring in um all, all kinds actually of technology that fragmented and has uh, brought further reductionism to our understandings of how we can communicate uh there's the there's there's all kinds of long stories that are in play here um and they are certainly going deep into education um but they are i mean i i'm i'm with zach on this the intergenerational piece is key that our relationship to ourselves and the world around us, our relationship to learning how to be in the world around us is actually um, something that is coming through the relationships in our intergenerational um, experience. So when we look at these events, we can see events, but what we're not seeing is the long, the long stories that have brought them into being and so then the the in 
pulse is to have a response at a first order to that problem. Here's the problem, let's analyze it and let's solve it at the first order. Um, but that's never going to actually produce any kind of deeper systemic possibility, um, except for the possibility of much more systemic consequences that you probably don't want. Um, the, the, the deeper work is going to be, and this is sort of what we're doing with the warm data lab stuff, is that, that people partake in these processes and you might say, but what did they get out of it? And the truth is, I can't tell you. But I might hear from them a few days later, hey, by the way, I quit smoking. Hey, I, I contacted an old friend I haven't talked to in 12 years. Hey, I had this conversation with my kid and then my kid went to school and had a conversation with another kid. And then I heard from their parents and now there's a new friendship. And what's happening in the second, third, fourth, nth, beyond orders of how relational process is taking place. So that's what I'm interested in. And um, I don't feel like, I mean, honestly, I feel quite impatient with first order change at this point. I really just feel like, okay, look, this, it didn't work. <laughs> you want some proof of it? Look at all the $8 million libraries that got built where there was no, no tradition of reading. There was no, you know, like, there's just so many countless uh, examples of beautiful, well-intended attempts to solve very complex problems with first order solutions. So how then to hold this indirect response in a culture where the deeper mechanistic metaphors are so in our bones, they are running through our blood now, um, that, that even our approach to thinking about relational process becomes a method. It becomes a mechanism. It becomes, it's, we start to play this pattern out into everything we're doing. And even when we think we're not doing it, and that's the trick of it. So this is where I, I think that it's, um, it's really necessary to create the conditions for um, people to be in mutual learning processes where they are actually able to perceive in ways they haven't perceived before where their own memories and impressions and feelings and stories are, are shifting in the liminal space. Um, I don't know that we can actually uh, create an overlying model to put on top of the world to, to implement, I, I'm highly suspicious of such a thing. Yeah, uh, thank you, Jamie. Uh, if we can move on, uh, move on to another panelist who would like to give your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, uh, Nora, since you mentioned libraries, um, I think that there may be a warm data context to consider with libraries. Libraries not necessarily being this mechanistic physical infrastructure where books are held and orga organized by ISBN number, but librarians know very well the warm data context, if I'm understanding your 
uh, concept correctly, the warm data context of people who use the library, um, people who are uh, houseless who come in and use the library for different reasons. Like they run uh, reading and literacy programs. Like they know how to market to different communities who are underserved and to get them in the library. They know that not everyone's gonna pick up a book. So there's, there's different forms of media that are available to the library. Even though libraries literally serve to benefit their patrons and constituents by curating the collection relevant to their geographic location, librarians know that they have to operate within a network to make sure the specific resources that are requested or recommended make their way rerouted through the network to that individual who may be in a location who's underserved. So I, I do think libraries in general shouldn't be considered in this mechanistic physical sense um, because there is a very warm um, context to librarianship and what it means to truly serve the public and enabling access to information. Um, what I think is wonderful about this panel is that it seems as though like the panelists all together represent different uh, variations of depth and breadth intellectually, informationally, um, and contextually. So when we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, dealing with the psychological, the deeply social psychological issues, that's a very deep uh, informational and intellectual context when uh, an informational context that's very broad means taking into account the sense making of everyone who, who may not be articulating their point of view in language because it is something that is deeply psychological that they're not able to articulate or they simply haven't articulated before. Um, and so, you know, projects that certainly assist with making that emerge and be accessible is so important. And related to the cake, um, if, if I could just jump on answering that question as well, uh, you know, I, I don't have a personal point of view to recommend it as to how to interpret the cake because my personal point of view is rooted in the process of the society library, which would be to look at all of the physical uh, dimensions of the cake as it's interpreted by the people who have senses in order to interpret its physicality, as well as the story of the cake, not only how it was made, but how people interpret how it was made, the different imaginative narratives that people may apply, the memories that they have that they assign to a cake, um, whether, you know, if someone grew up with a mother who's a baker, what they bring to that context that may not be put linguistically, but is so emotional is something that we would look uh, within media in order to find. So um, for the cake, uh, as an example, um, the work of the society library would be to examine who is describing this cake. Uh, is this cake black and blue? And do we have to reconcile with the fact that some people are going to see that cake as gold and white simply because our cognition and our senses are just so incredibly different. Um, you know, for me personally, I have allergies. So when I look at a cake, even if it's made of absolutely delicious things, to me, it's poison. It will make me absolutely sick. So for the Society Library, it's about finding every single point of view, interpretation, memory, sentiment, claim, argument that describes not only the claim, but the story, or not only the cake, but the story of that cake. And knowing that, you know, potentially one point of view, uh, the cake may be a lie, but um, with all points of view available, at least we can get on the same page and recognizing that there are different points of view that we have to reckon with um, and, and accept. And then maybe from there, that's a new, more broad context to which will allow new emerging conversations and sense-making to be had. Wow. Thank you so much, Jamie. And the cake is a lie. Portal reference for those unaware. Amazing. <laughs> Perhaps, uh, again, uh, the, the, we were talking about, again, thank you so much, Nora and Jamie, for, for your perspectives. And we're talking about the epistemological generations of yeast and talking about like intergenerational um, education. Perhaps, Zach, you have something to say on this and what made this epistemological confusion maybe stemming from? Sure. I mean, this is, it's an important question. And it is very easy to have a sense of presentism 
right? To see the first order problem and to live just in relation to the immediacy of the problem. And in fact, as Nora is saying, this is like a multi-layer cake that's evolved over a lot of time to create the quite dangerous situation we're in right now, frankly. Uh, and uh, sometimes I talk about uh, uh, teacherly authority, that there's been a fundamental breakdown in the dynamics of teacherly authority. Um, and you can trace that over time, the, how, the, how do you justify, like if you're a teacher in front of a classroom and you're like, okay, I'm gonna tell you guys what to think or how to think, I'm gonna help you understand the world. The basic question is always like, well, why do you get to do that? Who says you're the authority, right? And in some contexts, teacherly authority is demonstrable. Like, I wanna make a guitar. You know how to make guitars. You just, I just watched you make a guitar. <laughs> you are on an upgrading of skill from me. I'm gonna like choose to be a student to you and you're gonna to choose to take on the role of teacherly authority. And we're gonna agree that there's actually an epistemic asymmetry here in that you know more about making guitars than me. And, I, and you can be trusted to lead me along that path, right? So that's easy in some contexts where it's demonstrated, right? But there's many contexts where it's not easy to demonstrate that you have legitimate teacherly authority and therefore it's given to you bureaucratically. This is the big problem that reflective, especially males have in high school, I think, because it ends up being an authority issue because it's, I don't know, <laughs> that you actually have legitimate authority. You just have a particular job that gives you authority, but you can't actually demonstrate to me that what you're saying is you know, better or more sophisticated. Uh, and so we end up in a situation in late capitalism uh, where the remnants of the legitimation of teacherly authority that capitalism had used to maintain itself, which it took from pre-modernity, <laughs> have dissolved. And so there's a void of teacherly authority now. And this has been deepened more fundamentally by postmodernism in particular. And so teacherly authority is not just me and the teacher in the classroom, it's me and the New York Times on the screen, right? It's me and the president at the pedestal. It's about who the hell gets to teach anyone anything anymore, right? Everyone knows better. Everyone's got the two minute TikTok clip that actually tells them what the state of the world is. So this question of how do we actually reconvene legitimate and healthy context in which teacherly authority can exist. Now note, teacherly authority has been completely abused, right? Like legitimate critiques of teacherly authority Thank you. <laughs> like, especially if you look at the history of the American educational system or the history of spiritual teachers, a whole bunch of stuff that's very complicated around teacherly authority. So I'm not saying, yay, teacherly authority, let's go backwards to some kind of uh, early modern or period. But what I am saying is that right now, uh, there, there's, it's a hall of mirrors. Um, one person's teacherly authority is another person's charlatan. And the commodification of the teacher-student relationship fundamentally undermines any ability for there to be teacherly authority, right? Customers are always right. Students want to be proven wrong. Customers are always right. So if you're in a transactional relationship and that's part of the teacherly authority dynamic and this includes the student loan crisis, <laughs> like why are you telling me things I disagree with, professor? I'm paying your salary and taking out basically a loan on a house in order to sit in this classroom, therefore you're canceled. 
so that notion of entitlement that comes from having a teacher-student relationship be mediated by transactional mechanisms of exchange. So what I'm saying is I'm hinting towards the idea that, and this is a warm data issue, this isn't, cannot be solved on the internet. <laughs> this is about what it feels like to be in the presence of legitimate teacherly authority and what the contexts are that can be created in which teaching and learning and intergenerational transmission can actually take place again. Because right now the youth is legitimately completely skeptical of the adults, completely. Like they've been preyed upon. They are the most vulnerable in our society and they've been systematically preyed upon by the most sophisticated technologists in our society, full stop, right? No one has protected them. This has been low-grade child abuse on a very large level with social media propagation of micro-targeted advertisements to children uh, and the basically deep spiraling into uh, ID, identity formation, uh, black holes on YouTube. So what you're looking at is a situation of a complete undermining of teacherly authority, which is legitimate on the part of the younger generation. <laughs> uh, so we actually have to find a way to mend the contexts in which trust can be felt between generations again. Uh, and absent that, we're left in a situation of strategic relationship between generations. This is called generational warfare. Generational warfare does not end well. Uh, and uh, the question of if generational warfare is a sublimation of class warfare, which was predicted by some Marxists, is an interesting one insofar as the predatory dynamics are mostly driven by for-profit tech companies. So that was a long-winded way of saying yeah, I see the yeast as being something about those dynamics of teacherly authority and the continual breakdown of those over time to the point where now we have a society that has no context in which legitimate teacherly authority can be found. And that means that even though it looks like it, no actual education is taking place, guys, there's either people learning things because they have to, uh, uh, or there's um, people learning things on basically their own. Um, so those contexts are uh, the ones that I'm most interested in trying to find a way to fix. Uh, and to me, that's a deeper second, third order cause of what we're seeing up front here. Um, so that would be my, my general sense there. Mm, wow. Thank you so much for speaking to many people's experience, including mine. Um, so if anyone else has any thoughts on that, Evan, do you have any personal thoughts or David on like this yeah. confusion? Yeah. <clears throat> so I like where Zach is going with this and, and, and Nora as well. I mean, everything said so far is great. I think that this, this breakdown of intergenerational knowledge transfer is in fact a lot older than the past hundred years. I think it's important not to be uh, temporally myopic and to take a long view of human history. What I mean by this is that you could view most of the history of Western civilization over the past at least several hundred years as an attempt to essentially wall ourselves off from the uncertainties of nature and create little bubbles in which systematic understanding can in fact grok everything that's going on. And we can have effective control systems without having to worry much about second and third order effects. And you know, we've managed to create some nice interesting little bubbles like that. And then the second and third order effects of the bubble creation are finally catching up with us. So there are certain 
um, understandings, ways of relating to things like truth and meaning and authority, which uh, were, I think, better understood by pre-modern people. And I'm not saying that we should go back to some sort of pre-modern aesthetic or go back to some sort of pre-modern societal organization. But this is why I brought up the topic of metis in the uh, initial um, introduction, because uh, like Zach was saying, everybody has their little two minute TikTok or their 15 minute YouTube video telling you everything that's up with the world. Well, how do you how do you distinguish true and false? How do you distinguish who's trying to deceive you for their own profit and who is genuinely trying to help you out? And how much is that person genuinely trying to help you out? How much are they self-deceiving, right? Well, this is not something that can be done in a fully rational, systematic way from one single ontological frame, right? This is not the sort of thing that can be automated or mechanized. It can't be done on the internet. There has to be some level of internal ability to be grounded in your own whole being experience of being a human creature walking around in this world that allows you to, um, to make sense of things when you have rabbit holes that would take you half a lifetime to go down in terms of established traditions of sense making that, that you, you can't plumb the depths of all of those things. So there has to be some sort of perhaps not intellectually oriented method of coming to terms with meaning making and sense making. And I also want to bring in um, what Keats called negative capability, the ability to uh, appreciate the fact that there are in fact some unknowns and to not just spend all of your time irritably grasping for certainty with respect to those unknowns. So I think all of that is critically important. And I think that the generations now, the younger generations, you know, I'm an older millennial, we've got the generations younger than me. Um, it's not just that we failed to learn or our parents failed to pass down certain things. It's that this failure to pass down ways of sense-making that are not primarily intellectually oriented and that take into account the emotional field, the intersubjective field and the wisdom of the body, this has been interrupted in terms of its transmission in the Western mainstream for centuries. I mean, we've, you know, due to the influence of our religious foundations of our Western society, we've been existing in essentially a mimetic monoculture with respect to sense-making for a long time. And as anybody who looks deeply at ecology knows, monocultures are extremely vulnerable and generally a bad idea. So part of this, I think, is getting out of the mimetic monoculture that we've been in, where we can look at other ways of relating to things like epistemology, uh, that we can look at other ways of relating to metaphysics that are not so grounded in a single tradition. And um, where we can, again, not have this irritable grasping for certainty where we need to have some rational process of understanding every single thing, but to be able to listen to our deep sense of, of what's fair, what's true, what's good, what's beautiful, you know, like the, all, all of the stuff that the ancient philosophers talked about, there was some real wisdom in a lot of the ways that people approached the world in ancient times. And, and, and people back then were no less intelligent and no less, uh, having no less potential than people now. So it, it is important to reconnect with our roots, I think, going deep back into civilizational time and, and notice the things at, that, that we are now, um, we have now allowed to atrophy in terms of our human capabilities and to start working out those muscles as well. Wow, awesome. Thank you so much, Evan. Um, David, if you'd like, like to close off this question uh, and after that, we can move to our final section. Yeah, I, I feel like I don't have a, a huge amount more to add than has been expressed already. I really like the um, the symmetry of, of Nora naming a lot of the um, the kind of commodification 
of the and the cultural factors that have kind of led to that kind of corruption. The the piece that was put in the chat was brilliant. And then Zach, I really like that you brought in the the sort of the subjective or the the ground level. Like if we've lost the whole idea of of truth, we're kind of corrupted by relativism, um, and the idea of authority is completely gone. That's that's yeah, that feels to me like the other factor, like the, the relativism. Um, and I guess I don't have anything more to say other than it, it feels like um, it's the natural end point of like the atomistic, rationalistic, and then the, the tech platforms in particular, like this acceleration over the last 10 years, and especially of just weaponizing all of those vulnerabilities against us. And I, I just, the only way out to me seems to be I mean, but it's such a cliche, talk about paradigm shift, talk about the need for a deeper sort of spiritual um, sense of, of, uh, of a shift in who, who we are taken to be and our capacity. And the interview that, that we did with Tristan Harris, where he came down to saying, we need to treat attention as sacred. That was the, the centerpiece that, that I don't think he'd, he, I'd not heard him say before in quite that same way, but but there has to be some revolution in terms of how we see attention, how we see consciousness, and that there just doesn't seem to be a way out that doesn't involve that. Um, but it seems such a such a difficult problem, and and all of the like what we're faced with now. When I look at the the, the free speech arguments, are dilemmas that I don't see a way out of. There's no solution to most of these most of these answers. Like. Jack Dorsey and, and Twitter and like I see a lot of people being very very certain on either side like Twitter definitely shouldn't be banning people like Trump they shouldn't be taking these 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 accounts off but they're wicked wicked problems I wouldn't want to be in that situation but they're the surface order problems and I think um, I think everyone else has really named what's further down the stack that needs to be dealt with before we can even think about resolving any of those. Thank you so much, David. And yeah, there seems to be a consilience here. There seems to be a, you know, convergence on these. Are, we're not going to be able to solve this by going after first, second order. We're going to have to go third, fourth, fifth. But like, I'd like to end this session, this amazing session on um, a hopeful note. I mean, so I'd like to go one by one, uh, perhaps uh, one or two minutes, if you could tell us what you think is a way forward for sense making in the future. Like what, what is a practical, you know, first, second step that we can take that perhaps goes beyond just like, you know, um, combating fake news or false claims so beyond just the left brain, but again, goes perhaps the, the whole brain or even apps, you know, as uh, Evan uh, talked about the whole sense making, whole being sense making, which goes beyond just the individual. Uh, so perhaps uh, if anyone would like to grab that. Well, one thing that I'm just very hopeful for is that the different communities of sense making come together and start communing, commun communicating in and amongst themselves. Um, I think it's evident here that there's a variety of different approaches and there's only so much that we can talk about in an hour panel, especially taking turns. But for the different groups that are concerned with different elements of uh, enabling sense making at different levels, intellectually, informationally, informationally and contextually, um, I think it would benefit and I think now is the time for us to start figuring out how our work can be collaborative um, and truly achieve our shared end goals through our different strategies, which I believe all of which are necessary. Awesome. Yeah. Would anyone else like to jump in? What, what is a was a first step that we can take towards a better sense making in the future going forward? So mine is kind of simple. Um, you know, people talk about over information overload a lot um, and as though it's something new. 
we've been overloaded with information for a very long time since before we were human. We subconsciously process our sensory information in such a way that we can actually manage it in real time. And we have a little bit of a cognitive bug where socially generated information is marked as extra salient, right? It's marked as extra important and almost always promoted to conscious processing. Well, I think that introspective practices of phenomenological self-inquiry, I'm gonna just put another plug in here for, because we need to learn to downregulate the salience of all of the socially ge generated information out there and upregulate up the salience of information from our actual sense data, from our internal felt sense and from our, our you know, felt sense emotional field. That is the sort of uh, information that if we upregulate and pay more attention to it, will help everybody do the collaboration, reach out and see each other as more human and help fix our collective sense making. Awesome, thank you. Um, David, Zach, Nora, would you like to go next? I can, I can say something that I think I mean, I've tracked quite a lot of thinkers over the last two years, and I've also kind of looked at where, where is the novelty coming in the, in the collective conversation and this increasing sense that there isn't a lot of novelty. People seem to be going round and round in circles. And I think part of this is because, and it's to do with the social, social media apps, it's because we get established with a certain position and then we feel that we have to defend that. And I think we see this happening everywhere. And I think nowadays, you see this with, with, with sort of the well-known thinkers because they're, they're famous, they get kind of, they, they get established with a certain perspective. Take Sam Harris and New Atheism, for example. It's very hard for him then to kind of back off. And once you've, once you've built up an audience around a certain position, you've defended a certain position. And I think that's happened to everybody because the nature of the social media platforms were all famous in, in, in some network or other. So I think we need some kind of cultural shift where it becomes okay for us to bring in the psychological, for us to bring in a little bit more vulnerability and say, you know, I was wrong about this or I felt very, I felt under attack when you said this and to model that in public. Like I feel so many of the thinkers that I followed, so many of the high profile ones have just become ossified around a certain perspective that they've ended up defending. And I, I think that we need some kind of, we need to bring in the psychological. We need to understand that we're all subject to bias. We're all subject to audience capture. We're all subject to wanting to look good in the eyes of others. And all of those natural human tendencies have been incredibly weaponized against us to the point where I think a lot of people have ossified in their thinking and, and are just signaling, just signaling to their own side. They're not really looking to kind of understand the world. And I think there needs to be some kind of shift around personal sense-making that can then become more of a, a sort of um, examples for others and more of a cultural movement around vulnerability, honesty, uh, online. Um, that, that's about all I could say. Yeah, I, I'll say a few things. Uh, so yeah, I agree there needs to be widespread collaboration among sense-makers. <clears throat> and this is a task that is one this is a task that is one I would classify in the domain of ensoulment rather than in the domain of development. We don't need to become more complex thinkers. We need to actually deal with our shit and one another better, uh, like a lot better, quickly. Um, and that's hard to do in a context where there's a tremendous amount of pressure. And some of that pressure is being created by one of the most addictive things that has ever been created by humans that you carry with you constantly all the time. Right. I think we need to have a cultural movement of sense makers coming together. And I think we need something like an admission 
that these social media are dangerous, like we do with cigarettes. <laughs> uh, I think we're going to look back right now at this period, 50 years from now, and realize that we literally gave brain damage to an entire generation of children. Uh, and so it sounds extreme, but I actually think when you look at what's being done, and Tristan's work speaks to this, uh, the idea that it's low-grade child abuse for profit propagated across the entire subpopulation of kids below 19, it's a serious deal. And we're just doing it. Oh, and those are the most profitable companies. <laughs> uh, and we actually think this stuff's going to save us. Like, actually, if you're a good citizen, you're on Twitter and Facebook. Right. That's your civic duty to be on Twitter and Facebook and to stay abreast of all of that important news so that you can be informed. We need to break that narrative and actually have a narrative of like, just say no. Like, this is actually bad for you. Uh, and then we can start having conversations again, <laughs> I think, possibly, um, because right now you can't. You speak to people and they're just literally saying things that they just read on social media to you. Um, so anyway, that's my bit, maybe a little cynical, but I think drastic steps are needed in the domain, especially of adolescent socialization on social media. Um, it is, it's a serious issue. Thank you, Zach. Yes. Nora, last but not least. Please. Yeah, I, I'm um, not really sure what to say here, but I, I think the, um, one of the more interesting experiences that I've had in the last couple of years has been that I, I live in a country that's not my country. I, I married a Swedish man, but I'm from California. And so I, I'm constantly, all day, every day, I am not in a place where I have uh, an, an extended understanding of where what's happening around me. I go in the grocery store. I don't really know, you know, nothing is really what I thought it was. And communication goes sideways all the time. And um, this has been uh, really valuable because that I have come to recognize a particular kind of moment where I'm having a cultural confusion <laughs> And in the moment, I'm kind of numb. I don't really understand that I'm confused, but I, something is happening, and it it could be something little. You know, I have, I've, I've, you know, made an assumption about Swedish politics, and why is there no law that this or that? And it's you know, and and I don't know what it is that I've said that is triggering the response, which is not a response I'm familiar with, and I'm trying to figure it out. But in those moments, something larger has taken place, which is that there is the beginnings of a familiarity with the limitations of my own epistemological processes. Okay, so that is useful in every circumstance. It's useful, it's, it's, it's an important um, internal experience to become familiar with. And so I, I think certainly in our, our work with um, the warm data stuff, this is what we're doing is offering uh, circumstances where without it being a direct corrective, there is a shift in recognizing where the, the, 
the more patterned, the more habituated um, ways of being or feeling are, 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 are intuitively, instinctively coming out. Um, and so one of the things I see around me is that there's a lot of people, wonderful people, who are trying desperately to get at this sense-making thing. But, but there's an awful lot of kind of repeating scripts going on. And the, even the language is, is just pulling along with it, lots of old baggage of thinking. So I guess one thing that I would really just recommend is try, um, you know, to say something you've never said before and go into it not really knowing how you're going to say it and wander. If you have that opportunity in relationships to, to explore territories that you haven't been in before, that's all. Thank you so much, Nora, and what a wonderful end to this incredible panel. Thank you so much, Nora, David, Zach, Jamie, and Evan for taking part in this incredible state of sense-making on the web conversation brought to you by Bridget and Noic Nomads. It's really inspiring. I feel like we're only just getting started and I'm really looking forward to what comes from this. So thank you again so much, everyone, for coming out. And and taking part in this beautiful experience and our next panel ontological design session number one for the web featuring daniel frega owen cox raven Connolly, max goslin evan mullen is happening in just a few minutes stay tuned and everyone in the chat again gets a shiny invite to the noetic nomads discord go check it out links are in the chat and thanks again everyone first and thank stick you. around for the ontological design session thank you all right take care see you all soon this is just the start <laughs>